Volume two, chapter two of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume two, chapter two. The little waves make the large ones, and are of the same pattern. George Eliot. John was dragging himself feebly across the hall to the smoking room, after a dutiful cup of tea with his aunt, who was prostrate with a headache, when the doorbell rang and he saw the champing profiles of a pair of horses through one of the windows. Following his masculine instincts, he hurried across the hall with all the celerity he could muster, and had just got safe under cover when the footman answered to the bell. His ear caught the name of Mrs. Courtney through the open door of the smoking-room, and presently, though he knew Miss Fane did not consider herself well enough to be able to see visitors, there was a slow rustling across the hall and up the stairs, accompanied by a light, firm footfall that could hardly belong to James, whose elephantine rush had so often disturbed him when he was ill. As James came down again, John looked out of the smoking-room door. "'Who is with Miss Fane?' Uh, "'Mrs. Courtney, sir.' "'Anyone else?' Uh, "'No, sir. Miss Fane could only see Mrs. Courtney. Uh, Miss Tempest has come with her, is in the gold drawing-room. John shut the smoking-room door and went and looked out of the window. It was not a cheerful prospect, but that did not matter much, as he happened to be looking at it without seeing it. Lindo got up on a chair and looked solemnly out too, rolling the whites of his eyes occasionally as his master from under his bushy brows, and yawning long tongue-curling yawns of sheer ennui. The cowls on the chimney-pots twirled, the dead plants on the leads were still dead. The cook's canary was going up and down on his two perches like a machine. John reflected that it was rather a waste of canary power, but perhaps there was nothing to hold back for it in its bachelor existence. It would stand still enough presently when it was stuffed. Could he get upstairs by himself? That was the question. He could come down, but that was not of much interest to him just now. Could he get up again? Only the first floor, shallow stairs, sit down halfway. Awkward to be found sitting there, certainly. One thing was certain, that he was not going to be conveyed up in Marshall's solemn embrace as heretofore. John reflected that he must begin to walk by himself some time. Why not now? Very slowly, of course. Why not now? It certainly was slow. But the stairs were shallow. There were balusters. It was done at last. If that alpine summit, the upper mat, was finally reached on hands and knees, who was the wiser? John was breathless but triumphant. His hands were a trifle black, but what of that? The door of the gold drawing-room was open. It was a historic room, the decoration of which had been left untouched since the days when the witty Mrs. Tempest, whom Gainsborough painted, held her salon there. It was a long, pillared room. Curtains of some old-fashioned pale gold brocade, not made now, hung from the white pillars and windows. The gold-coloured walls were closely lined with dim pictures from the ceiling to the old Venetian leather of the dado. Tall, gilt, eastern figures, life-size, meant to hold lamps, stood here and there, raising their empty hands, hideous, but peculiar to the room, with its bygone stately taste, and stiff white and gilt chairs and settees. John drew aside the curtain, and then hesitated. A family of tall white lilies in pots were gathered together in one of the further windows. Di was standing by them, turned towards him, but without perceiving him. 
she had evidently introduced herself to the ladies as a friend of the family, and was touching the heads of those nearest to her, very gently, very tenderly, with one finger. She stood in the full light, like some tall, splendid lily, herself, against the golden background. John drew in his breath. It was his house. They were his lilies. The empty setting which seemed to claim her for its own, to group itself so naturally round her, was all his. There was a tremor of prophecy in the air. His brain seemed to turn slowly round in his head. He'd come upstairs too quickly. His hand clutched the curtain. He felt momentarily incapable of stirring or speaking. The old physical pain, which only loosed him at intervals, tightened its thongs. But he dreaded to see her look up and find him watching her. He went forward and held out his hand in silence. Di looked up, and her expression changed instantly. A lovely colour came into her face, and her eyes shone. She advanced quickly towards him. "'Oh, John,' she said, "'is it really you? I was afraid we should not see you before we left town. But you ought not to stand.' John's complexion was passing from white to ashen grey to pale green. "'Sit down.' She held both his passive hands in hers. She would not for worlds have let him see that she thought he was going to faint. "'This is a nice chair by the window.' drawing him gently to it. "'I was just admiring your lilies. You will let me ring for a cup of tea, I know. I'm so thirsty.' It was done in a moment, and she was back again beside him, only a voice now, a voice among the lilies, which appeared and disappeared at intervals. One tall, furled lily-head came and went with astonishing celerity, and the voice spoke gently and cheerfully from time to time. It was like a wonderful dream in a golden dusk, and then there was a little clink and clatter, and a cup of tea suddenly appeared close to him out of the darkness. And there was Di's voice again, and a momentary glimpse of Di's earnest eyes, which did not match her tranquil, unconcerned voice. He drank the tea mechanically without troubling to hold the cup, which seemed to take the initiative with a precision and an independence of support, which would have surprised him at any other time. The tea, what little there was of it, was the nastiest he had ever tasted. It might have been made in a brandy-bottle. But it suddenly cleared the air. Gradually the room came back, the light came back. He came back himself. It was all hardly credible. There was Di sitting opposite him, evidently quite unaware that he had been momentarily overcome, and assiduously engaged in pouring out another cup of tea. She had taken off her gloves, and he watched her cool, slender hands give herself a lump of sugar. Only one small lump, John observed. He must remember that. Then she filled up the teapot from the little gurgling silver kettle. What forethought! Wonderful! And yet apparently all so natural. She seemed to do it as a matter of course. He ought to be helping her, but somehow he was not. Would she take bread and butter, or one of those little round things? She took a piece of bread and butter. Perhaps it would be as well to listen to what she was saying. He lost the first part of the sentence because she began to stir her tea at the moment, and he could not attend to two things at once. But presently he heard her say, "'Mrs. Courtney thinks young people ought not to mind missing tea altogether. But I do mind, don't you? I think it is the pleasantest meal in the day.' John cautiously assented that it was. He felt that he must be very careful. 
or a slight dizziness which was now rapidly passing off might be noticed. Di went on talking unconcernedly, bending her burnished golden head in its little white bonnet over the teacups. She seemed to take a great interest in the tea-things and the date of the apostle-spoons. Presently she looked at him again, and a relieved smile came into her face. "'Are you ready for another cup?' she said, and it was not a dream any longer, but all quite real and true, and he was real too. "'No, thanks,' said John, taking his cup with extreme deliberation from a table at his elbow, where he supposed he had set it down. "'There is something wrong about the tea, I think. Do send yours away and have some more. It has a very odd taste.' "'Has it?' said Di, meeting his eye firmly, but with an effort. "'I don't notice it. On the contrary, I think it is rather good. Try another cup.' "'Perhaps the water did not boil,' suggested John feebly, reflecting that his temporary indisposition might have been the cause of his dislike, but anxious to conceal the fact. "'That is a direct reflection on my tea-making,' said Di. "'You had better be more careful what you say.' And she quickly pushed a stumpy little liqueur-bottle behind the silver tea-caddy. "'I beg pardon, and ask humbly for another cup,' said John, smiling. The pain had left him again, as it generally did after he had remained quiet for a time, and in the relief from it he had a vague impression that the present moment was too good to last. He did not know that it was usual to wash out a cup so carefully as Di did his, but she seemed to think it the right thing, and she probably knew. Anyhow, the second cup was capital. John was not allowed to drink tea. The doctors who were knitting firmly together again, the slender threads that had so far bound him to this world, believed he was imbibing an emulsion of something rather strengthening and nauseous at that moment. "'Oh, there is a tea-cake,' said Di, discovering another dish behind the kettle. "'Why did I not see it before?' "'It is not too late, I hope,' said John, anxiously. The stupidity of James in putting a tea-cake, which might have been preferred to bread and butter, out of sight behind an opaque kettle, caused him profound annoyance. But Di could not take a personal interest in the tea-cake. She looked back at the lilies. "'Don't you long to be in the country?' she said. "'I find myself dreaming about green fields and flowers gratis. I have not seen a country lane since Easter, and then it rained all the time. It is three years since I have found a hedge-sparrow's nest with eggs in it. Don't you long to get away?' "'I long to get back to Overley,' said John. "'I went there for a few days in the spring on my return from Russia. "'The place was looking lovely, but,' he added as it were a matter of course, "'naturally Overley always looks beautiful to me.' Di did not answer. "'You know the wood below the house,' he went on. "'When I saw it last, all the rhododendrons were out.' "'I have never seen Overley,' said Di looking at the lilies again, and trying to speak unconcernedly. She knew Lord Hemsworth's tarsome old border-castle. She visited at many historic houses. She and Mrs. Courtney were going to some sort shortly. But her own family place, the one house of all others in the whole world which she would have cared to see, she had never seen. She had often heard about it from acquaintances, had looked wistfully at drawings of it in illustrated magazines, had questioned Mrs. Courtney and Archie about it, had wandered in imagination in its long gallery and down the lichened steps from the postern and the wall that every artist vignetted 
to the stone-flagged Italian gardens below. But with her bodily eyes she had never beheld it, and the longing returned at intervals. It had returned now. "'Will you come and see it?' said John, looking away from her. It seemed to him that he was playing a game in which he had staked heavily against someone who had staked nothing, who was not even conscious of playing, and might inadvertently knock over the board at any moment. He felt as if he had noiselessly pushed forward his piece, and as if everything depended on the withdrawal of his hand from it unobserved. "'I have wished to see Everly from a child,' said Di, flushing a little. "'Think what you feel about it, and my father, and our grandfather. Well, I am a tempest, too.' John was vaguely relieved. He glanced from her to the Gainsborough in the feathered hat that hung behind her. There was just a touch of resemblance under the unlikeness, a look in the pose of the head, in its curled and powdered wig, that had reminded him of Di before. It reminded him of her more than ever now. "'Archie has been to Everleigh so constantly that I had not realised you had never seen it,' said John. "'But I suppose you were not grown up in those days, and since you grew up I have been abroad.' "'Shall you go abroad again?' "'No, I have given up my secretaryship. I have come back to England for good.' "'I am glad of that. I have been away too long as it is.' "'Yes,' said I. "'I have often thought so.' "'Why?' There was a pause. "'We are not represented,' said Di proudly. She was speaking to one of her own family, and consequently she was not careful to choose her words. She had evidently no fear of being misunderstood by John. "'We have always taken a place,' she went on, "'not a particularly high one, but one of some kind. There was Amius Tempest, the Cavalier-General, and John, who was with Charles of Bourbon at the sacking of Rome, and there were judges and admirals. Not that that is much when one looks at other families, the Cecils, for instance, but still they were always among the men of the day. And then our great-grandfather, who lies in Westminster Abbey, really was a great man.' I was reading his life over again the other day. I suppose his son only passed muster because he was his son, and owing to his wife's ability. She amused old George the Fourth and made herself a power, and pushed her husband. "'My father never did anything,' said John. "'No. I have always heard he has brains, but that he let things go because he was unhappy. Just the reason for holding on to them all the tighter, I should have thought, wouldn't you?' not with some people. Some people can't do anything if there is no one to be glad when they have done it. I partly understand the feeling. I don't, said I. I mean, I do, but I do understand giving in to it, and letting a little bit of personal unhappiness, which will die with one, prevent one's being a good useful link in a chain. One owes that to the chain. Yes, said John. And yet I know he had a very strong feeling of responsibility from what he said to me on his deathbed. I have often thought about him since, and tried to piece together all the little fragments I could remember of him. But I think there is no one I could understand less than my own father. He seemed a hard, cold man, and yet that face is neither hard nor cold. John pointed to a picture behind her, and Di rose and turned to look at it. It was an interesting, refined face, destitute of any kind of good looks, except those of high breeding. The eyes had a certain thoughtful challenge in them. The lips were thin and firm. Both gazed in silence for a moment. 
He looked as if he might have been one of those quiet, equable people who may be pushed into a corner, said Di, and then become rather dangerous. I can imagine his being a harsh man, and an unforgiving one if life went wrong. I'm afraid he did become that, said John. As he could not find room for forgiveness, there was naturally no room for happiness either. Was there someone whom he could not forgive? asked I, turning her keen glance upon him. She evidently knew nothing of the feud of the last generation. At this moment the rush of James the Elephant-Footed was heard, and he announced that Mrs. Courtney was getting into the carriage and had sent for Miss Tempest. "'Good-bye,' said Di cordially, gathering up her gloves and parasol. "'Go to Overley and get strong, and—you will have so many other things to think of. Try not to forget about asking us.' "'I will remember,' said John as if he would make a point of burdening his memory. He was holding aside the curtain for her to pass. "'You see,' said Di, looking back, "'when we are on the move we can do things, but once we get back to London we cannot go north again till next year. We can't afford it.' "'I will be sure to remember,' said John again. He was a little crestfallen and yet relieved that she should think he might forget. He felt that he could trust his memory." She smiled gratefully and was gone. She had forgotten to shake hands with him. He knew she had not been aware of the admission. She had been thinking of something else at the moment. But it remained a grievous fact all the same. He walked back absently into the drawing-room and stopped opposite the tea-table. "'Vinegar!' he said to himself. "'What can James have been about? I draw the line of vinegar at five o'clock. I hope she didn't see it.' He took out the last stopper. Not vinegar, no. There is but one name for that familiar, that searching smell. It's brandy, said John aloud, speaking to himself, while the past unrolled itself like a map before his eyes. Yes, look at it. Would you like to smell it again? There's no need to be so surprised. You had some of it not ten minutes ago, you poor, deluded, blinded, bandaged idiot. Whom do you think I have seen? said Di, as they drove away. Mrs. Courtney made no attempt to guess, which was the more remarkable, because, when Miss Fane had ordered a cup of tea for Di, James had volunteered the information that he had already taken tea to Mr. and Miss Tempest. "'Whom but John himself?' continued Di. "'I thought he was still invisible.' "'I'm sure he ought to be. I never saw anyone look so ill. We had tea together. I really thought you were never going away at all.' but I was glad he was such a long time, because it was so pleasant seeing him again. I like John, don't you? I have liked him from the first. He is a sensible man, but I prefer people with easier manners myself. He is more than sensible, I think. We shall be too late for the pony races, said Mrs. Courtney. It is nearly six now, and I told Lord Hemsworth we would be at the entrance at half-past five. He will survive it, said Di, archly. "'And, Granny, John is going to ask us to Overley. "'I told him I had never seen it.' "'Good gracious!' exclaimed Mrs. Courtney. "'There was no doubt about her interest this time. "'You did not suggest our going, did you?' "'I'm not sure I did not,' said Di, unfurling her parasol. "'Look, Granny, there is Mrs. Buller nodding to you, and you won't look at her. Uh, "'Yes, I rather think I did. I, "'I can't remember exactly what I said, but he promised he would not forget.' and I told him we could only come when we were on the move. I impressed that upon him. 
really die, said Mrs. Courtney with asperity. I wish you would prevent your parasol catching in my bonnet and not offer visits without consulting me. It would have been quite time enough to have gone when he had asked us. He might not have asked us. Mrs. Courtney, who had seen a good deal of John in the weeks that preceded his accident, was perhaps of a different opinion, but she did not express it. Neither did she mention her own previously fixed intention of going to Overley somehow or other during the course of her summer visits. "'What is the use of near relations,' continued Di, "'if you can't tell them anything of that kind? I believe John will be quite pleased to have us now that he knows we wish to come. If only he remembers. Come, Granny, if I take you to Arkelo to please you, you ought to take me to Overley to please me. That's fair now, isn't it?' "'It may be extremely inconvenient.' said Mrs. Courtney, still ruffled. "'And I had rheumatism last time I was there.' "'Think what rheumatism you always have at Arkelo, which sits up to its knees in mist every night in the middle of its moat. And yet you would insist on going again. There's that nice Mr. Sinclair taking off his hat. Won't you recognise him? You thought him so improved, you said, since his elder brother's death.' "'My dear,' said Mrs. Courtney, "'I am not so perpetually on the lookout for young men as you appear to be.' All the same, you may put up my parasol, for I can see nothing but the sun in my eyes. End of Volume 2, Chapter 2